Scarlet stood before the court, an attorney in a suit, swore an oath to tell the truth. Scarlet well, we've made it to the end of season two of For the Defense. I'm David Oscar Marcus, and I've got a bunch of treats for you in this last episode of season two. That song you are listening to is called Call to Arms. It's by Amande Nyong'o, and he wrote it on Martin Luther King Day of 2021, and he's been kind enough to allow me to play it during this episode. You'll hear it both in the intro as we speak now and at the end. And it's really a song about taking action for justice, not just sitting around and talking about it or hoping for it, but taking action. And that leads me to who we have on today's episode, Michael Tiger, who is exactly what action is all about. I mean, in 1999, there was a vote for lawyer of the century. Clarence Darrow was number one, Thurgood Marshall was number two, and you know who was number three? Michael Tiger. And he's just an incredible lawyer. You get to hear him next. He represented Terry Nichols back in 1995. Remember, Nichols was accused along with Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma City bombing case, a horrible, horrible event in American history. And there was a real question about who would represent these guys. The public defender's office there couldn't do it because they were conflicted out. Many uh, colleagues were killed. Uh, would local bar members take the case? Many refused. And so the judge turned to Michael Tiger one of the all-time great lawyers to take on probably the most difficult case you could ask for, a bombing on American soil by American citizens. And you'll hear from Tiger about how he gave it his all, how he put together a team, how he filed the motions that made a difference in the case, and how he saved Terry Nichols' life from the federal death penalty. All in for the defense, next. Well, I am just really excited because today on the podcast, we have the great Michael Tiger. It's it's I'm get to talk to a living legal legend today. He's tried and been involved in some of the most important cases in American history. And not only that, but he's a writer, an author. He, he teaches. He runs a blog. He lectures. He worked at the great Williams and Connolly. And today I'm going to speak to him about the Terry Nichols case, one of the most important cases. So welcome to the show, Michael. Well, thank you. And um, as, I, as I mentioned just before we started, you sent out some notes about this. And it's just interesting to see all of these folks all engaged in the same endeavor, uh, sharing values and ideas and so on. It's great. And, you know, I want to take you back to 1995. Um, it was one of the most horrific events in American history. It was the bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building. And Timothy McVeigh killed, tragically, 168 people. And Terry Nichols was charged as a co-conspirator. Um, and, and you get a phone call to be appointed to the case. Tell us about that. 
Well, I, I was in Washington, D.C. and um, called home. And my daughter said, well, uh, Judge Russell has called you from Oklahoma. And uh, I said, well, I think I know what that's about. And I called Chief Judge Russell back. And he said that he had found appointed counsel for McVeigh, that is Stephen Jones, but that the Federal Defender Service would not be able to represent Terry Nichols because their offices had been damaged in the bombing. And he wanted to appoint me to the job. And he'd give me overnight to think about it. Well, I, I thought about it overnight. The first thought I had was, how in the hell did he get my phone number? <laughs> right. uh, what, is, what is this about? So I called around, and it turns out that Pat Higginbotham gave me up. I called Judge Higginbotham's chambers, and he came on the phone laughing. Uh, it also turns out that there is a list of lawyers in the uh, Thurgood Marshall Center in Washington, plus the fact that Chief Judge Russell had seen a videotape that we had made at the Smithsonian in uh, summers ago in a, a series of programs about trial lawyers that were done on the mall. And I had done a mock summation in a death penalty case. But anyway, I, it seemed to me that having been active in the ABA, having been a one preaching about what lawyers ought to do, and conscious of the fact that if Nichols was, Terry Nichols was to be held liable, it would be on some kind of complicity theory. So there, there we go again with uh, the law of parties and the law of conspiracy. That, that this is something that I was obliged to do. So I said yes and started reaching out for, to get some help. Did you have second thoughts about it? Were you, were you, was it a debate or was there no question you were going to do it? I, I think it was, it was obvious that I was going to, it was obvious from the start that I was going to wind up doing it. Right. And overcoming whatever objections anybody wanted to make. And let me ask you, I mean, when you get a case like that, and obviously Timothy McVeigh was the, central figure. I imagine that the feds immediately call you and say, hey, we want your guy to, to flip and, and uh, you know, try to make a deal with you. Did that happen or, or how did it work? No, never. They never offered us a deal. I'm surprised by that. Uh, no, they wanted, they wanted two death sentences. Mm. And right, so is, that, is, is that one of the reasons you take the case because Nichols is facing the death penalty and you had, you had really made a career out of fighting against these types of cases? Yes, that's a, a special instance of a general principle. That is to say, however bad we think the client might be, whatever thoughts we have about that, the fact is that this system uh, is so corrupt in so many ways that our participation in it is an important way to reclaim these little patches of justice that we're able to do. And that's particularly so in capital cases. You know, when I go to cocktail parties or dinner parties, the first question people ask me is, how do you represent those people? How can you do what you do? How do you do criminal defense? And, and this case, Michael, is the epitome of that question, I'm sure you got asked all the time, how could you represent that guy? How do you represent those people? What's your answer to that? Well, the answer is yes. I mean, Jody Madera wrote a book about the, the reaction of victims and victims groups, and we saw that. But the answer to that is that we in the work that we do, and you've been doing it all these years, are drawing the most important line that a society can draw. That is to say, the line between liberty, liberation, and punishment administered at the hands of the state. 
And if the state is permitted to impose this punishment uh, to whatever degree, without having to go through these procedures and rituals that have to do with reliability and respect for dignity, then uh, we're all losers. That's the way I feel about it. And you've been doing this a long time, obviously, and teaching at different universities and law schools about the role of the criminal defense lawyer. I, many people would say, well, listen, you know, you didn't have to take the case. Why does the great Michael Tiger have to represent Terry Nichols? Why not let someone else do it? Well, um, you know, I, a lawyer, a trial lawyer is a massive blob of ego suspended over a chasm of insecurity. So, <laughs> um, the, and, you know, what, what did Dryden say? A daring pilot in extremity, but for a common fit. Um, <laughs> There's this, we have this, this boundless uh, ego-driven confidence. So I really thought I could do a good job. The second thing was that I, I didn't trust the system by which lawyers were being selected in Oklahoma. I'd, done, I'd tried cases in Oklahoma. And I was glad that Chief Judge Russell reached out to me as an outsider because uh, ultimately, if there was going to be any fairness at all in this case, um, outsiders were going to have to come in and, and provide it. You know, you mentioned the egos that we all have and, and trial lawyers, criminal trial lawyers, probably there are no bigger egos around. We all think we can try the best case. The, the one time, by the way, that I thought I couldn't match what I saw is I saw Albert Krieger once do a cross-examination and I said, I'll never be able to do what, what Krieger just did. But by and large, we think we can, we can do the best job and win the most impossible cases. But how do, we, how do you teach someone to be a great criminal defense lawyer? Where do people learn to do this? Well, uh, over time, you get better at it. I mean, when I was three years out, I thought, man, that was good. And then, you know, 20 years later, I realized I really had to learn a few things. So the first thing we can do is to have the opportunity to work with other lawyers. I was lucky. Edward Bennett Williams was my mentor in the law. I was the 10th lawyer to join that firm. And Ed was not only a wonderful trial lawyer, and a magnificent appellate lawyer. I mean, I'm arguing in the Supreme Court of the United States, but also he was self-reflective. As you worked with him on a case, he would sit down and say, well, now I'm gonna do this. Now I'm gonna argue this. What do you think about that? And then repeatedly he challenged you to challenge him about what he had proposed to do. Uh, so that it was an incredible learning process. And even today, my book, Persuasion, The Litigator's Art, has a, one of his cross-examinations, closing arguments, and Supreme Court arguments in it. You can buy the book, um, go on Amazon and get it. But um, also, just go and get Wong Sun versus United States. We know that case. Listen to his oral argument the second time it was argued, the first 11 minutes, and say to yourself, oh, my God. You, you know how the case has to come out once you've listened to him tell the facts. So um, that's what we, that's, that's just a few of the ways that we can do it. I'm David Oscar Marcus, and we'll be right back.
after hearing Tiger talk about Williams give the oral argument in the Supreme Court case of Wong Sun, I figured I had to go back and listen to it. It's great. You can listen to the whole thing on the OEA website, oyez.org. But here's a couple minutes of the intro of Edward Bennett Williams giving oral argument in that case. Number 479, Wong Sun and James Watt Toy, petitioners versus United States. Mr. Williams, you may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. This case is here on a writ of certiorari to the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. I think that I can best be helpful to the court at the outset by reviewing in a cursory way the factual background against which the legal issues posed here are raised. The place in which the events germane here occurred was San Francisco. The time was June 4, 1959, and the hour was 2 a.m. At that time, a Chinese named Ham Wei was arrested by federal narcotics officers, and in his possession was found an ounce of heroin. He was taken to federal narcotics headquarters in San Francisco, and there began a systematic interrogation of Ham Wei. At 5.30 in the morning of the same day, what was the hour when he was taken? At 2 a.m. He was taken forthwith to headquarters. His arrest was made at 2 a.m., Mr. Justice Frankfurter. And he was then interrogated. And at 5.30 a.m., he identified the source of his heroin as being one blackie toy who operated a laundry on Leavenworth Street in the heart of Chinatown in San Francisco. Is he the gentleman whose name is on the paper? That is never cleared up by the record, Mr. Justice Harlan. It's interesting you mentioned finding a mentor. You had the best, Ed Williams. I mean, people, I never got to see him, but people say he was the greatest trial lawyer of the 20th century, and you had him as a mentor. You tried the Connolly case with him, not to get off topic from, from Nichols, but um, tell us about, about that experience. Well, um, yes. In, 19, in 1974, I'd been gone from the firms in 69. I'd gone to France and because I wanted to write a book, which became Law and the Rise of Capitalism. I wanted to understand where we were and what we were doing. We had lunch, Ed and I, in um, 74 in January. And on the way out of Duke Siebert's, he said, come back to the firm. Uh, come, come see me tomorrow. There's a case coming. And I, I want you to be with me on that. And, um, and so we did. And when the jury came in and said not guilty, Ed put his hand on my knee and he looked at me and said, well, that makes up for the last one, the Bobby Baker case. <laughs> That's so correct. This was quite a ride. It really was. 
unbelievable. Uh, and it was Ed at his best exposing the corrupt plea bargain that the snitch Jake Jacobson had made. That was, um, I mean, from one end to the other, um, they, they were quite a ride. So back to Nichols for a moment, this great story about Ed tapping you on the knee like that. I love it. But back to Terry Nichols, you get appointed, you have to go see the see Nichols and develop a relationship with him and gain his trust. Did, did he even know how lucky he was getting by getting Michael Tiger to come represent him? Did he know who you were? He certainly didn't know that. But uh, first, it's true. When you are appointed in a case, the first thing you have to do is go see the client. And the next thing you have to do is do something substantive for the client to let him or her know that you're on board. So I went up and I saw Terry Nichols and I introduced him. I've been appointed to represent you. And his first words were, they told me I was getting Jerry Spence. <laughs> That's great. And I said, well, you're not. <laughs> and he said, well, tell me about yourself. So we talked. And, and in the end, we, you know, it worked out. That was, so those were the first, second things. Now the, the next thing was, you know, I, uh, Judge Russell wanted to give me a co-counsel that he would name. And I thought, that's not happening. Uh, so I reached out. And uh, Ron Woods agreed to be co-counsel. Now, as you look at the history of this case, I had known Ron uh, since he was an assistant U.S. attorney. He was about my age. He'd been an FBI agent. He had been a prosecutor in Harris County. He had been an assistant U.S. attorney and my adversary and the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Texas. We had been together then representing Kay Bailey Hutchison, along with Dick DeGarrett. So I reached out to Ron and he said yes. And that was the single best thing that happened. This was a guy who knew how the government worked. It became obvious to the jurors that he knew something about law enforcement. His cross-examinations of FBI agents. Well, sir, well, what is it makes you think you're qualified to be an FBI agent? Uh, and he could sort of ask that. Um, that was, and then the next step was, talk about people learning. I knew that there would be issues under the federal death penalty statute. There'd be issues of joinder and severance. There were bound to be issues about recusal. And uh, so I assembled a group of, of five or six law students at the University of Texas and said, I'm going to give you a course credit to do this. And I get the dean to give you, you know, individual study credit and you'll be on this journey. What a great experience uh, for them. Well, what a great experience for us because they, those folks just showed up for work. And, um, you know, they, many of them gone on to law practice in, in various ways, uh, including, I mean, Teresa Trascoma, who's a lawyer in the New York. Hello, Teresa, if you're listening. Um, she clerked for Steve Reinhardt. And, um, Sophie Fanelli, who was getting her LLM. She's a young woman from Marseille. She'd been my student in Aix-en-Provence when I was teaching there. And she asked if she could join the team. Well, she then did join the team. She's very valuable. And now, and then went to work for the ACLU of Southern California, became admitted to the California bar. Great. Um, Great. And so on. So, John Harris. All right. I'm curious about the Ron Woods request because you are this firebrand criminal defense lawyer on the left. 
representing Terry Nichols, accused of one of the worst crimes in American history, and you ask a former U.S. attorney to join your team, it's not a, a natural fit. It's not something you would think, well, let's find the U.S. attorney to join us. Um, and, I, you know, I guess I have a couple questions. One is, why did you think that was a good fit? And two, what, did he question coming into the case? I mean, former U.S. attorneys might be reticent to join a team like this. Well, at the first, okay, did, did he have reservations? I, you'd have to ask him what, if he had reservations. Uh, I respected Ron Woods. When he was an assistant U.S. attorney, I had some cases in the Southern District of New York in which, for various reasons, Maine Justice and or the FBI were behaving like badly. Um, we won't use one of the seven prohibited words there. But uh, Ron Woods was a, behaved honorably and kicked cases that needed to be kicked and so on. He stood up against the Thornburg memo. He said to his office when he was U.S. attorney, you go interview somebody, a represented person, uh, and, you, and their counsel isn't there. I will fire your ass um, because that's our obligation. So uh, he there's no question. Then we, you know, we represented Senator Hutchison. So I got to see him in action and to right. work with him. I knew that as a matter of personality, things were going to be great. Great. Uh, he brought to the table this incredible experience. Um, and so that was, that was the point. Didn't care much about his politics. Right. You know, a lot of times criminal defense lawyers are asked, well, did you ask your client whether they did it? I mean, don't you want to know whether they did it? And on all the legal shows, they always say, you know, they show the criminal defense lawyer telling the client, you have to tell me everything. I need to know everything before we start the trial. In this case, do you go in and, and ask Nichols, were you involved? Did you do it? Or should criminal defense lawyers not do that sort of thing when meeting with clients? That, I don't think that question has a categorical answer. By the time, if we're going to trial, by the time we get to trial, I want to know not everything. I want to know all the evidence that shows either, you know, points in one direction or another direction. I want to know all the ambiguous evidence. The, the, I mean, you know, circumstantial evidence, Sherlock Holmes said, is like a stick on the ground. It points indisputably in one direction, then you turn and walk around the other side, it points indisputably in the other. So, but I want to know all the evidence in the end. I want, and that's why we had books, we had methods of dealing with that. 100,000 pieces of physical evidence, 60,000 FBI 302s that they disclosed to us, and then it turned out in cross-examination that they had withheld 35,000 more. Wow. Uh, so there we are. There's a great story about that. Yeah, let so me hear that story. Let I, then then not, to, not to disrespect Bill Clinton, but you say, did they do it? Well, what's it? Right. What's it? Did they do the conduct? Okay. Maybe the evidence is they did the conduct. Based on what social background? Based on what mental state? Based on what motivation? This is what Lady Barbara Wooten preached, you know. She said that we should have a system in which we convict people, you know, preliminarily based on just did they do the conduct. Then we got to ask the serious questions. Right. Right. What, what about this? So, I mean, I think it's a meaningless question. 
You mentioned getting 60,000 302s, just so people know 302s are reports of interviews that the FBI agents, uh, when they interview someone, they do a report and that report is called a 302. And you get all of this discovery. And like you said, you have to put together this team to go through everything and to review everything because there's so much material. And you mentioned there's a good story about not getting 35,000 extra pages. I know we're jumping the gun a little bit, but but what happened? How, how did you not get everything? We negotiated with the government to get all of the FBI 302s, even though technically they could argue we weren't entitled to them because they are not statements of the witness within the meaning of the Jenks Act. They're Which the crazy. statements. Crazy. So they didn't do it. Um, but then it turned out and, and and we put them all into a computer so we could search them. In exchange, we gave up most of the state witness statements that our investigators had taken, not the, we had a whole privilege work product thing that's on. And um, that exchange worked out extremely well because it gave us hints as to where things are. Not so much that we could cross-examine witnesses based on it, but we were able to form this alternative scenario of how McVeigh and somebody not Terry Nichols had done it. But the 35,000, uh, we had a witness on, there was a witness on the stand, a government witness named Sergeant Wald. And Sergeant Wald had been at the Geary State Fishing Lake a couple of days before the bombing. And he said he had seen a pickup truck that looked like Terry Nichols' pickup truck, dark blue with a white camper top, parked next to a rider truck, which that was the truck in which the bomb was theoretically mixed. That was his direct exam, the government. We cross-examined him and attacked his credibility based on the fact that this dark blue pickup truck kind of got dark blue over time. It didn't really start out that way. Right. Um, and so the government called in order to uh, uh, rehabilitate him, uh, FBI agent Christopher Budkey. And Christopher Budkey uh, gets on the stand and says that he had interviewed Sergeant Wall, blah, 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 blah. And I cross-examined um, Agent, um, when you were talking to Sergeant Wall, did you make a memorandum of your talk? Well, I made a 302. And the government lawyer, Mr. Mackey, comes out and he presents me with a 302. I say, I have the 302. And I didn't ask you that. Did you make a memorandum? Well, I, 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 I wrote his name down. Sir, when you spoke with Sergeant Wall, were you sitting in an office? Yes. Did you have a writing instrument? Yes. Did you have paper? Yes. Did you write something on the paper? Yes. What did you write? I wrote a lead sheet. That's a term we'd never heard before. I said, what's a lead sheet? Well, it's a handwritten thing of what the witness tells you. Oh, mind you, that's not the witness's document. That's Sergeant Wall's document. That's his statement. We ought to have had that. You're entitled to it. Mackey, Mackey, Larry Mackey says, Let's, can we come to the bench? He pull, puts a briefcase up on his table and unlocks it, takes a document out of it, and we go to the bench. Well, shortly thereafter, we've got in our hands a handwritten thing written by Mr. Budkey, a lead sheet. Wow. So I put it in front of him and put it on the screen, and I ask him, 
um, the, uh, you know, to, to tell us what it says. And then I say, so when it, what it says is Sergeant Wall observed a rider truck and a gray Chevy pickup truck parked at the lake. Isn't that what you wrote? Wow. Answer. That's what I wrote. Question. And that's what he told you? Answer. He told me it was a dark colored pickup truck, possibly gray. <laughs> Sir, do you see the words dark colored anywhere on this document that you wrote? No, I don't. But that's what he told me. Is it your habit, sir, to write down something different from what witnesses tell you when you're conducting investigations? Incredible. Okay. Incredible. So there. So that's just that. That was one of our happy moments. And, and, you know, it's incredible that you didn't get that because not only is it his statement, but it's obvious Brady material. It, 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 go, it cuts it undercuts both what he said and what the witness said. It should have been provided and it wasn't. Well, not only. Yes. And we, you know, Terry didn't obviously didn't get the death penalty, but and but even after Tim McVeigh's on death row, the government the FBI agent disclosed there yet boxes and boxes of things they didn't give us, including the fact that the FBI had interviewed a friend of McVeigh's, who we thought was a perfect candidate to be John Doe number two, the other guy, and we had mentioned that fact because his name had come up, and the government poo-pooed it even while the FBI is holding back. Unbelievable. So we got two things. First of all, the Bureau, the cops, the cops hold back stuff from the prosecutors. It just happens. And then the prosecutors may not be honest. So it's always a two-step inquiry that has to be made. It's really surprising, but let's, let's rewind for a minute. You get appointed. We're, we're pre-trial now. Um, and there's lots of legal maneuvering Michael, that goes on between you and the government and, and strategy. And the first big move that the defense does is move to recuse the judge, not just this judge, but all of the judges. Can you tell us about that? Judge, judge well, the indictment gets returned sometime, I think it's in August, right? So now we know. And uh, there's been an indictment. And I get a phone call. Mike, yes, this is Judge Wayne Alley. Um, as you probably know, the indictment has been returned to, to me. I have the case. I said, they said, well, I've, I've denied your motion to recuse. <laughs> and I said, well, Judge, I have not made a motion to recuse. And he says, yes, but you will. And I'm just going to save some time here. Um, so, um, yep. So we moved to recuse the judge. This the ceiling of whose chambers had fallen down in the explosion. The judge who had attended um, the, uh, funerals of people that were killed, his friends, uh, and he wouldn't go. So we went to the Tenth Circuit. Steve Jones would not join us in that. He was content to have the case tried in Oklahoma. Jones is McVeigh's lawyer. McVeigh is appointed lawyer. Um, and I, I, I could say, so I might as well say it now. You know, I thought to myself, you know, we're going to need a severance here, not necessarily from a baby, but from Steve Jones. <laughs> what we're done. Right. But um, we went to the Tenth Circuit on a mandamus. Now, mandamus to recuse a judge is pretty rare, although I had recently won one in the Fifth Circuit. Um, and we asked not only that there that be that they recuse, but that the chief judge of the 10th circuit name a replacement 
not the Chief Justice of the United States, uh, who we did not think had our interests so much at heart. Um, and we knew then that, you know, if she picked a judge, Judge Seymour, if Chief Judge Seymour named a judge, we had a fairly good idea who we were going to get. That is, we were going to get Mage. Why, why did you know that? Because, okay, let's look around. Judge Richard Mage had distinguished himself. He had tried a big bombing case. He was well known as a very well-organized trial lawyer. He was the chief judge of the district, ah. and it was an adjacent state. We were not going to get somebody from Kansas because that would not perhaps be a, a good venue anyway. There'd be a challenge there. We were not going to get somebody from New Mexico. There wasn't good transportation between Oklahoma City and New Mexico. So the odds kind of looked. And then if you look downrange, when you get a judge from outside the district to take on a big case, whether it's civil or criminal, the judge one morning wakes up and says, I'd like to sleep in my own bed at night. Exactly. And so if you look at the history, you see that we kind of nudged along towards a potential change of venue. So in other words, you, you get the Tenth Circuit to appoint a judge from uh, Colorado, from Denver. Yes. That judge, Mache, doesn't try the case, initially has to come to Oklahoma he City does. to he try it. To Oklahoma with his own courtroom clerk, Jim Manspeaker. And so he brings his own entourage. Right. And he brings his entourage. You're bringing your entourage from Texas. Everybody's coming from different places. Um, and and you say, well, we need to get this case out of Oklahoma City. And you have a receptive ear because, like you say, the judge may want to go sleep in his own bed yeah. and so on. Yes, um, we we do. Have, I mean, we do have a receptive ear and we briefed the case. The most you can read the opinion, the, the opinion on the change of venue. Our best witness was Scott Armstrong, the co-author of The Brethren. And what did he say? The government had said that this case had international publicity. You, wherever you go, people have read about it. So Scott gets on the stand and says, yeah, that's true. But when a tragic, significant event happens in a community, local media covers it in a fundamentally different way then the event is covered in some place that's distant because it wants to serve the interest of its community in closure, in special information, and in so on. It's different. And Judge Mates adopted that theory, and you can read it in the opinion. It was a brilliant, you know, brilliant job. And what Judge Mates also wanted was he wanted to be in control. One day we were in the middle of this hearing. We go downstairs to have lunch in the courthouse cafeteria, and damn, they are selling bombing memorabilia in the federal courthouse cafeteria. Oh, my. Where this case is supposed to be going to be tried. Well, we promptly bring all that. We buy as much of it as we can, you know, 30, 40 bucks worth, <laughs> and we bring it up and mark it and put it in evidence. And Mage had Mates through a fit. The next morning, Terry was on the front page of the Oklahoma papers in his flak jacket through coming through the Sally port. The marshals had allowed the press to photograph him with handcuffs and shades on. So, I mean, by that point, Mates was just, <laughs> it was fit to be tied. It, I mean, the, the evidence was provided for us in a sense. 
Well, a lot of times lawyers say, you know, bad facts make bad law. And this case could have been that, but you, it sounds like you had a great judge. Well, judge, uh, we, we had our quarrels at the end, but what we were saying to people, and you can read, if you want to order this book, Trial Stories, it's got a story about the Nichols case, as well as a good thing for trial lawyers to read. Angela Jordan Davis and I edited it. Um, what, what Mace was concerned about, what we said, we introduced the idea that the governor of the state had said that we'll give these boys a fair trial before we execute them. Oh um, the, and, and so on. And what I, what I said to the judge in arguing was that, you know, your honor, two roads diverged before us uh, with the centuries of our civilization and the decades of our liberty piled so high. And one road we are beckoned upon by anger and vengeance and the other by adherence to these principles. And a principle that when we summon someone, anyone, Terry Nichols to court, to find out whether they're going to live or die, we owe them to create as best we can a kind of sanctuary in the jungle. Now, I gotta tell you something. I stole that from Ed Williams. <laughs> Where did he say it? He said it in oral argument in Alderman Ivanov. I think I'm gonna steal it for he, my next uh, case wiretap case that that so that he said i yield to no one in my regard for the executive branch they can lie cheat steal commit murder or burglary but i have always believed that in federal court in a criminal case we are making a kind of sanctuary in the jungle that was one of two great things in that argument the other was when justice justice harlan said well mr williams uh, you know, you know, if we decide this case your way, it means a spy goes free. And that said, well, yes, but you know, espionage has the lowest recidivism rate of any federal felony. <laughs> That's great. Great line. Great so, line. This is for the defense, and we'll be right back. One of the great things about this podcast is hearing all of these wonderful stories. And so when I heard about Edward Bennett Williams using the sanctuary in the jungle line. I had to go hear it for myself. I'll play it for you now. So it's our position, if the court please, reduced to its essence, that the concept national security should not be the talisman for a pro tanto suspension of due process of law or of any of the rights guaranteed to an accused in a criminal case. If in the conduct of relationships between governments in our time. It has become the custom or it has become a necessity to engage in wiretapping or eavesdropping or dissembling or purloining or burglarizing or even killing. It is not our, our argument in this court today that the executive branch should be manacled or impeded or harassed in the conduct of relationships with other governments. It is our argument here today that at least the federal courts should be a sanctuary in the jungle and that these morals and that these mores should not be imported 
into the American judiciary system, and that the fruits of this kind of conduct should not become evidence in a criminal case brought by the sovereign power against an accused, nor should leads derived from this kind of conduct be available to the prosecutor in a criminal case brought by the sovereign power. In essence, as I understand the government's position, in this case it's asserting its right to be let alone. And uh, to that we say, Amen. So long as the evidence is not offered in a federal criminal proceeding. You, you get recusal, you get um, we change get recusal, of venue. And we get a change of venue. Now, you, the third big legal maneuver pre-trial is you, and you mentioned it before, is you need Sever. a severance from McVeigh because you can't yes. be sitting next to McVeigh. If you're sitting next to McVeigh, you're going to get convicted. Well, that's right. And that for a lot of reasons. Um, but what we said was that in a, although the federal rules of criminal procedure, Rule 14, favor joinder, in criminal cases after the Supreme Court did, we thought in capital cases that separate trials should be constitutionally mandated. Now, we didn't have to sustain that as a position, but as a matter of fact, some we found a case from around 1790 that said, they quoted Blackstone, in favorem vitae, in favor of life, separate trials. We put on a justices of the a justice from the Cal Texas Court of Criminal Appeals who said we we always separate trials in Texas. I mean the death penalty capital of the world. Hmm. Brian Stevenson came and testified about the need for individualization of the penalty and how that can happen in joint trials. So we, um, I mean, I think it was a, it was persuasive, and it worked. We get separate trials, and and you know. You're appointed in this case, but you're calling all of these world-renowned experts. How do you, does the judge approve all of these fees and expenses or how does that work? Well, it worked. As soon as Mace got on, it worked. I went to Oklahoma City and promptly rented, had, you know, leased some space for us to have an office and we started paying expenses and I was going back and forth. And the local, the court clerk, the Oklahoma City Federal Court was just monstrously slow about approving the claims and sending them on to Washington. Mm-hmm. I was $40,000 in the hole oh. before I saw a dime um, in this. As soon as Mage came on board, he appointed someone, you know, a special member of his staff to review and pass on the compensation claims within a week of their filing. And they managed to catch up. Right, because it's not just you. You have to pay all of the people that you're that are working well, with you. I we then worked it out with the judge that each of our paralegals and each of our law students would file their own CJA forms. Good, good. Which makes would then process because I, you know, well for obvious you, reasons. Right. So let's get into the trial, Michael, because. In a lot of death penalty cases, and, and especially a high-profile case like this that it, with such tragedy and, and, and horrible uh, things that happened, some lawyers would say, listen, you don't fight too hard on innocence. You got to try to set it up for mitigation for the death penalty phase. The whole case should be geared towards trying to get your client life. Um, was that, that, didn't, that obviously wasn't your strategy. You went in arguing for not guilty verdicts. We, that's right. We made that decision. We made that decision about jury selection. 
you recall that the jurors were selected by coming to the state fairgrounds, 1,300 of them, half in the morning, half in the afternoon, to fill out a questionnaire. Then we riffled through those questionnaires and, um, you know, winnowed it down. Then jurors were called in one at a time for individual voir dire. Now, in, uh, we decided to demand that Terry Nichols be present at the state fairgrounds when the jurors were filling out their questionnaires. McFay's lawyers had not asked for that. Mates was furious at us. But I said, John, this is a critical phase, you know? And so how did they do it? Did they bring him? They did. They brought him in civilian clothes, sitting five feet from the judge with a nice shirt and so on, so forth and so on, because it's all about that. So we then do the voir dire. In the voir dire, we have our counsel table is across the room. Every time the prosecutor in voir diring a juror would say something about the death penalty, Ron or I would put our hands on Terry, a hand, just a hand. You're coming for him, you're coming through us. Um, Amazing. And we did a voir dire that was designed to explore what we hoped was open-mindedness. Yes, because we were concerned about the, the trial phase as well as the penalty phase. And you want stories, I give you a story. Um, Mage got very impatient with us because the McVeigh jury had been selected in a week and a half of individual voir dire. We had five weeks. Wow. Um, and Mage was getting very impatient. And early on in the process, one of the prospective jurors said, said, well, you know, I just wonder uh, about, you know, deciding persons telling the truth. Maybe there could be a computer program. You could kind of hook it up and analyze how that happens. And I said, well, you know, tell me about that. May said, no, that's the most ridiculous idea I've ever heard. He said, no, that's not a question you can ask. Mr. Target, don't answer that. And, and, and no, that's not it. You go on to something else. Well, the juror leaves the room after that. And I said, your honor, I move, I respectfully submit that your comments to the juror were inappropriate. I move you bring the juror back in and apologize to the juror and apologize to me in the presence of the juror for what you said. He took a 15-minute recess and he came back and did it. Wow, no way. Yes, way. Um, <laughs> and that's, so we, we wanted to open up, right? And then, of course, the government had their own jury expert, um, boy, they, who, I don't know, persuaded them to accept the one that later became four person of the jury. Now, come back to your question. In every criminal case, you've got to take, in every capital case, you've got to take the trial phase seriously. There are things you can do, witnesses you can examine, concerns you can raise in the trial phase that cannot be raised at least as effectively in the penalty phase. Orlando Hall, who was just executed by Barr, that savage. Um, the one reason for his ineffective assistance to counsel claim was that there was an awful lot of cross-examination of the cooperating witnesses that could have been done in the trial phase. It simply was not going to be done because they wouldn't be called in the penalty phase um, and so on. So there's, you know, you got, you got to think about you got to work on both hands. You know, you mentioned that every time the death penalty was mentioned, you put your hand on Terry Nichols. And, and public defenders and criminal defense lawyers know this, that you have to humanize your client. It's so important. Even in this most horrific of crimes, you have a human being sitting next to you. You have to humanize him. And 
even down to the introductions when you're doing your opening statement. I found it fascinating that, you know, we always hear the government when they get up, I represent the United States of America. It's a privilege and honor to stand up. And it always drives me crazy that they're able to say that to start out. But I, I loved how you started, Michael. You started by saying, I'm a school teacher and I'm a, you know, you explain where you teach. And then you introduce Ron Woods, former United States attorney, former FBI agent. So you threw it right back at them. Well, Yes. I mean, those who are tuned in, I hope, can read the opening statement. Uh, we worked on that a long time, how we were going to do this. But the basic rule remains the same. You cannot start by telling the jurors what a good person your client is, because they've just heard that your client is terrible. The real question the jurors are showing up to decide is, is he good for it? So you have to start by pulling the sting. You have to start with the facts. And you can probably look, you remember I did the hand, right? Can you see my hand? You can't, not until I've turned it over and showed you both sides, can you say you've seen my hand? That's it, I stole that from Jerry McCarthy. Um, I'm looking at, um, what I said, we, we talk about the damage. We agree and understand and stipulate and concede that at least 168 people died from that crime, that the crime visited enormous harms on the hundreds, on hundreds of others. There's no dispute about that. The dispute is, can they overcome the presumption in law that Terry Nichols had nothing whatever to do with it? But I want to warn you, the prosecutors may choose not to accept the reality that we accept. They may choose to put before you graphic, emotional, tragic evidence of the devastation on April 19th. These evidence, these events, they're not in dispute. We understand that there's not a joy the world can give like that which it takes away. The prosecutors may replay these terrible images over and over as if to say that somebody has to be punished for these things. Um, really, really important. Really anyway. important, Michael, because what you do there, and I think this is this is such a great teaching tool, is you don't fight against that. You almost embrace how horrible it was um, to, to make sure the jury doesn't think you guys are the bad guys. Yes, because, and that has to be our theme, you know? Right. And, what and we've said is, you know, we, we're going to call people who, who have been victims. Right? We mean them no disrespect. It is to the living we owe respect. To the dead, we owe only the truth, as we'll tell. That was, uh, a, that was a great line. And, and you stopped reading before I thought was the, the great line from the intro, which was Terry Nichols was building a life, not a bomb. Oh, well, that's a, there, yes, there's that. There's a beautiful line there. How did you tell us about that theme that and that, that one line? One of our paralegals, Kathy Robertson, um, is a poet, and she was working. She had a relationship with uh, one of the lawyers on the case. And our offices in Denver had a kind of open area when you first came in, and then people had their little cubicles. And one day, Kathy walks out and stands in the front, the middle of the office, and says, Terry Nichols was building a life, not a bomb. I said, shit, you know, that's, that's epiphany time, right? This is a... Uh, uh, whatever. 
Get out your pencil and write that down. Yeah, yeah, write that, write that down. We'll get back with Michael Tiger and For the Defense next. It's been fun finding these clips of Edward Bennett Williams in the Supreme Court. Williams, of course, was Michael Tiger's mentor back in the day. And a helpful listener sent me an interview between Mike Wallace and Edward Bennett Williams. Um, Just to set the stage, I'll play a bit of it in a second, but you can watch the interview and Wallace is smoking the whole time and doing advertisements for the cigarettes. It's a room full of smoke. And he's asking questions of Williams of how he represents the guilty, how he can use his talents to try to get people off, the questions that criminal defense lawyers are always asked. And I thought this clip of Williams answering Mike Wallace on that point was really great. Let me ask you something more specific. Ed, in taking on the defense of a client, do you care whether or not he's guilty? Well, let me put it this way. Of course I do. But I don't conceive it to be the function of an advocate or the function of a lawyer to make a moral judgment on the rectitude of an accused's case. Fortunately, uh, it isn't expected or required of lawyers to make moral judgments. The guilt or innocence of the defendant is determined by the jury. But a fellow comes in and says to you, Ed, Excuse me, excuse me. Let me finish that, uh, Mike, if I may. Surely. Everyone is entitled to be tried in court. Our philosophy of criminal jurisprudence is that the government of the state must prove the guilt of a defendant beyond a reasonable doubt. If they fail to do this, then we leave the defendant to the majestic vengeance of God if he be guilty. Because the basic philosophy of our criminal jurisprudence is that it's far, far better that ten guilty men go free than that one innocent man go to the penitentiary convicted of a crime uh, of which he's not guilty. And that became, that became the theme. It became, the, it became a theme in, in different ways. You could see it work back and forth in uh, talking about, you know, the tide of anger and grief and vengeance created by the uh, victim impact evidence, the whole, you know, and indeed, in the, under the federal death penalty statute, you get the judge has to list if, upon your demand relevant mitigating factors. So we asked him to charge as a mitigating factor. Terry Nichols is a human being. And the government objected. And we said, well, he is. And so he did. He gave it. <laughs> they objected. I like that. Uh, they probably think well, he wasn't. Yeah, well, he wasn't or that it's not relevant or whatever, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Getting back to the opening for a second. I mean, a lot of studies have come out and said opening is the most important part of a trial, especially you. We wouldn't think this, but in a lengthy trial, because um, jurors' minds get made up so quickly. Do you do you agree? I mean, you've tried so many cases. Is opening the most important part? I I can't say most important part. I've mean, read some stuff. Um, in a complex case, the jurors are helped by having a structure on which to put the items of evidence that they're seeing. That's what I believe. As a matter of fact, I'm a hearing officer now for the DC bar in disciplinary cases. And I just sat in one that lasted six days, 5,000 pages of exhibits. And when it was all over, I said, gee, I think I know how this is gonna come out, but I couldn't tell you why, because the lawyers have done such a crappy job of putting it together. Mm. So no, the opening statement gives you 
the point-by-point themes. That's why we spent so much time. I did half, and then Ron Woods did half. He didn't send out his half. His half was brilliant because it was the FBI agencies, members of the jury. The FBI did a wonderful job investigating this case for a day and a half. <laughs> That's devastating. And then, and then onwards. And the, the closing argument also was an exhibit-driven closing. That is to say, we knew that there had been pictures and photographs and statements and documents. So I, in the opening and the closing argument, I said, members of the jury, I'm an advocate. I'm biased. They are too. Don't let them tell you that they're not. But so I want you to grade my paper. I want you to go back in the jury room and say, can we believe what Mr. Tiger told? So I'm going to go through in this opening statement the exhibits that you will have in the jury room. Mind you, the government had used all this electronic screens and so on. We had always gone back to the paper documents because those are the ones the jurors are going to have. So that you can say, look, let's look at this. So as in closing argument, I grouped it with groups of exhibits that are going to guide the jurors as to the significant issues. Um, so uh, now, now I'll answer your question. Is the opening statement the most important part? Well, no, but it is an important part. It's a part of giving the jurors a structure. Right. And, and before we get in, in more into the closing, I noticed in the case that you called so many witnesses in the defense case. And typically, especially in, in, in a first degree murder case, a death penalty case, people don't expect the defense to call so many witnesses. I know Williams always liked to put on a defense and and uh, in the Connolly case, he put on Reverend Billy Graham. Uh, you guys did that. It was a great story there. Well, the, the we had great character witnesses. We had Barbara Jordan, which, you know, we had Lady Bird Johnson and, um, and Billy Graham. And so um, Ed said, you know, what, tell, what is your name? I am the Reverend Dr. Billy Graham. And what is your business or occupation? I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the world. And juror number five said, amen. <laughs> so uh, great. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, but our witnesses, what happened in this case was, did, was Terry Nichols present with McVeigh to mix the bomb? Was Terry Nichols present? Did McVeigh have with him somebody else, not Terry Nichols, when he rented the Ryder truck? Did, and remember, the FBI had 1,100 fingerprints suitable for comparison that they could have helped us resolve those questions, but they didn't. You see that in the closing argument. So our job, uh, the witnesses, were witnesses who bit by bit Witnesses who overheard a bunch of people at the Gary State Fishing Lake. Witnesses who lived in this street, 87 of them, I think, by the time I counted. So, yes, we put on a lot of witnesses. And we were very fortunate to have a former client of mine, an Air Force major, Deborah Meeks, who to arrange to, you know, get the witnesses into town to book their passage to, and to... Uh, you know, make sure that they were in the witness room and so on so that our case looked efficient. Yeah, the logistics of putting on so many witnesses, people don't realize how hard that is because you're trying to prepare a trial. You're in, in the courtroom all day. 
you need someone out there to help or, or it's just impossible to do? We, yes, we do. And the answer is we found someone to be in charge of that who then worked with our paralegals. And this, by the way, is something about how you do the trial. The trial is an endurance conference. We had people, we knew what, what case we were going to try, Ron and I, but we also knew we needed a night's sleep. Every morning during the trial, I got up at four o'clock in the morning and was sitting at my desk and in the office by five. That way, if there was a memo that needed an evidence issue we wanted to discuss, I could whack out a, a draft or pull something out of the file of things that we had and ask one of the paralegals to make sure to be on the judge's desk when he got in in the morning. That way, the judge knew that we were serious about this point and that we were going to hold him accountable every step of the way. Uh, he kind of enjoyed that, I think, this notion. Well, the and judges... The same token, by the time the trial day was over, you know, six o'clock, we would have a little meeting and say, what are we going to be do tomorrow? And then I was able to leave the office, swim, have a, you know, leisurely meal and get a nice sleep. So I'd get up and do it the next day. Right. Because as you say, I mean, it's an endurance contest. It is so taxing. Um, you know, we, we talk about a doctor has to do an eight hour surgery and everybody's amazed that they're doing that eight hour surgery. But lawyers have to do month long trials, many months. It's, it's so hard on, on lawyers. Um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about, and we've talked about it in other interviews in the podcast, is the decision to call the client. Now, in a case like this, was there ever any consideration in calling Terry Nichols or that was just off the table? That, uh, that was off the table. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, we, we didn't. And, you know, Ed Williams, uh, in fact, I've, I've been in cases in which I'd call back to the office and I would say, you're going to put him on? I'd say, no. He said, well, it could be a mistake. Well, fine. Uh, maybe it is and maybe it's not. Um, and, but I, I don't think it, it always needs, I don't think it always needs to be done. Uh, I think the client is present. It is very important that the jurors, that the client be dressed, respectable. I don't want, I didn't want Terry or any other client whispering in the ear, oh my God, how did they find out about any of that? We had, we knew we were going to have a dignified looking counsel table. Right. Right. Because, you know, the jurors are watching everything, everything story. Um, when I'm standing at the lectern doing an examination, I don't like to be interrupted. Um, we have the counsel table, you can imagine, is parallel to the jury box across the room. Perpendicular to it is another table in which uh, other lawyers working on the case, paralegals, would be seated. And the, that cast of characters would change depending on what was being considered, because after all, we're in trial for four months. Uh, Jane Tiger, um, Jane Blankstein Tiger, to whom I am married and was at that time, was in charge of preparing the cross-examination notebooks for the government's expert witnesses, the forensic evidence and so forth and so on. We'd been to London, we'd examined the bombing residue, the FBI lab scandals, all of that you can read about. Um, and so each, if you wanted to get my attention when I was examining a witness, you would write it, write something on a card and put it in a little box and out on the table. And each person at the table had a different color card, right? Great. And James were purple. 
Two days into examining the witnesses, the clerk comes in and reports that one juror had said to another, did you see when Mrs. Tiger puts a purple card in the box that that means that Mr. Tiger is about to do something to the witness? <laughs> That's great. I love that. That's really good. That's really good. Let me ask you about closing for a second. Um, one of the lines that you've gotten a lot of discussion about both positive from criminal defense lawyers, but negative criticism from others is when you said uh, at the very end, I tell you this, my brother, he is in your hands. And you refer to Terry Nichols as your brother. Now we talked about humanizing clients and how important that is. You called him your brother. Uh, talk to us about that. Well, I, I did it because it seemed right. And I haven't heard, I've heard the government criticize it because I had a tear in my eye uh, and I wasn't supposed to. I was building a bridge to the penalty argument. In the penalty argument, I took up this theme. You haven't distributed that, but you can find it in the trial stories book. I said, you know, I, when I last time I spoke to you, members of the jury, I said, my brother's in your hands. And I then some people criticized me for saying that. And let me tell you what I had in mind, please. Um, I don't. I guess everybody knows the story of Joseph in the coat of many colors, the Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat, uh, whatever. But it, the story is this: that one day um, Joseph's brothers decided to do him in, but rather than kill him, they decided to take mercy on him, and they they left him. In, in a ditch. Well, and, and then they sold him into slavery. And he then goes, is taken in slavery to Egypt, and he becomes great in the house of the Pharaoh. And as it happens, you probably remember there was a famine in Canaan, and the, the father tells the brothers, you go down to Egypt and see you get us some food. So they go, and in the meantime, Joseph has become great in the house of Pharaoh. And they don't recognize, he comes they come before him, they don't recognize him. And um, he says to them, gee, don't you have a brother? And they say, well, we do. We have a little brother, Benjamin. Well, you could bring him. And they say, oh, no, no, because if anything happens to Benjamin, our father would go down in his grave. He's already lost one child. Joseph says, no, Benjamin, no food. So they go and they bring Benjamin, and then they get the food. And Joseph causes a, a, a cup, valuable cup, to be placed in the mouth of one of the sacks of food, and the, they're all arrested as they leave the town. And there then follows Judah's uh, summation, which is regarded as one of the great speeches um, in, in, the his, in our cultural history. And he listens to it. And finally, and Joseph says, oh, that famous thing, and I'm not doing it justice today. He says, for I am Joseph, your brother. These are the people that want to kill him. Right? And he found in his heart, in the last two chapters of Genesis, the brothers are shaking their, scratching their heads, saying, does he really mean it? And, and so such a powerful story. Well, as it happened, it was the Torah portion at the synagogue attended by the four person of the jury uh, that week. I didn't know that. Somebody afterward looked it up and told me. But so I, yes, I consciously used the idea. And it was this, yes, there's a risk. 
But if we couldn't convince a working plurality of jurors that this made sense, then we're sunk. And Michael, before you convince them in the penalty phase, obviously you have the um, the trial phase, the innocence guilt phase. Yeah. And, you know, it seemed like the trial, as horrific as the acts were, that the defense had a real shot after this uh, to win. And, and they go out, they're out for six days, they come back with what's an obvious compromise verdict. They, they acquit, they find Nichols not guilty of all the counts except for the conspiracy count. And, um, and, and involuntary manslaughter. And involuntary manslaughter. They acquit of first degree murder, acquit of second degree murderers to the federal agents, not guilty of use of weapon of mass destruction, not guilty of arson, guilty of conspiracy, and the conspiracy count does not contain an allegation that resulting death was an object of the conspiracy. So you must, I mean, from any objective measure, this is a huge victory for the defense, and yet Judge Mage sets you for the penalty phase to determine whether your client should get death. You must, you must, how do you feel at this point? I, um, uh, well, gobsmacked, I, I think it's just wrong. We had an acquittal with respect to resulting death, but the federal death penalty statute reserves the question of culpable intent with respect to resulting death into the penalty phase. If you read the statutory, you know, how, how this goes, one, two, three, four, you read the statute. So Mitch took the position that he was, that, that that was okay to do. Now, he also was conscious because there had been some reports. One of the jurors had been talking. They were, uh, there was substantial sentiment for acquittal, outright acquittal at one point, apparently, in the deliberations. So that's what we heard. So, yes, there we are with a penalty phase. And I think the government made a mistake at that point because they tried the penalty case that they had come prepared to try, which meant that they overtried their case. Right. And seriously overtried their case. You mentioned tears before. The government lawyers started to cry. They cried in the McVeigh case during the penalty phase. And you filed a motion saying, uh, you were concerned about them showing emotion when they were calling uh, these victims. What did the judge do about that? Well, we had two things. First of all, we had, yes, there had been a government lawyer in the McVeigh case who had sat right next to the jurors, sniffling and crying. And uh, Mitch would not disqualify her, but he uh, assessed her a yard and a half penalty and said that she had to move her chair away from the jury box. Then the question was the victim impact evidence. Now, these vic the victims here, yes, they'd lost, but they not only were they victims, but they were angry at these jurors for having acquitted Terry of so much. I mean, we got death threats in our office. My mother was in town, and, and we, the judge mates assigned a marshal to go with her, with a, a lady marshal with a gun in her purse to help my mother do her Christmas shopping. I mean, it was, it was something. Um, so yes, but and I've written about this. The, only, the thing I would take away for the lawyers that are listening is this. When we present witnesses, we prepare them to testify. Witnesses are objects of our intention and tactics. And so it is in the penalty phase. Yes, these folks have lost, but they're being weaponized and deployed in ways that are designed to get the jurors to vote for death. A little while ago, you used the expression humanized. Well, you know, our clients are quite human enough, thank you. 
And it is our job to, to build that consensus of, of an idea. And, and so, so that was the penalty phase. And you yeah. get life, um, which obviously you save Terry Nichols' life. Um, people are upset, as you say. Lots of people mm. are upset, Michael. And they bring state first-degree murder charges against Terry Nichols. Was there a thought that you would try that state case or you, you had done it? Never, a never, never. Because? Um, because I am not an Oklahoma lawyer. Brian Hermanson, who was the lawyer, is bringing. Barbara Bergman was going to help him. And Mage had funded us putting all of the evidence, everything, excuse me, everything we had assembled in boxes and labeling it and indexing it so that they could use it. And um, and I didn't have another one in me anyway. <laughs> right. I mean, and so he goes to, Nichols goes to state trial. He gets convicted of everything in that case. He gets a life sentence there. But why Why the different result? Why does he get convicted of everything in, in state court? Well, it's Oklahoma. Right. Right. I mean, it's just a different jury. Yeah. Um, and... You know, I, I can't say why. I mean, I didn't I wasn't there. I didn't read the transcript. But you said, you know, he gets life. You know, Mage, we go for sentencing. And Mage says, I sentenced him to life without parole. And I said, well, Your Honor, conspiracy and involuntary manslaughter. What's your what are you doing? He said, well, I'm using the felony murder guideline. And I said, Judge, what's the felony? He said, conspiracy. I said, no, conspiracy was a misdemeanor at common law. It cannot be a predicate. Well, it's pretty much the same. Okay. And the Tenth Circuit took the appeal. It's pretty much the same. So, yes, people were angry because they thought we'd gotten away with it. And they felt they got some of that back by having this nonsense sentence that has no legal foundation at all. As you just, you shook your head. So you're, they can't. Well, now he's serving that sentence at a horrible place, a supermax prison. And, and just so the people who, who don't know about these sorts of prisons, there's all sorts of federal prisons out there. There's minimum security, medium, maximum, but then there's a place called the supermax. And, and that's where Nichols is. It's, it's just awful. It is just ghastly. Fortun indeed, he was probably fortunate that he was held in custody in Oklahoma awaiting trial there. I mean, I went to see him there. Uh, the supermax prison is cruel, unusual punishment uh, to the nth degree. It is the kind of institution that should not be permitted to exist. So you saw him in the Oklahoma State Prison. Have you been able to get into the supermax, or is that allowed? No, I have not. Uh, he is. He hasn't asked me, and 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 I and I haven't gone. Um, you know um, that chapter. We've each decided, we've each gone our different ways about that. Right, right. And so the case is over. You've gone your separate ways, but you still teach and lecture and speak about the case. What, what is, is there one main takeaway, Michael, from, from this case that you can share with us? No. I mean, I don't know. There's not one main. The point is that we're, we're lawyers. That now we go on and we do the next thing. I've just been, my testimony had been read, had to be read in because it couldn't go there in the Julian Assange case. We tried to save the life of Orlando Cordia Hall in the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Um, there's, you know, the, 
there's stuff. We, we, we go, we, we do the next one. That's the exciting thing about this profession of ours, in a way. You can just um, get on to the next case and you have to get on to the next case. You've been doing this for so many years and you're an inspiration to us that you try these cases, you win these cases, you fight for your clients. So I just wanted to thank you for uh, speaking with me and for sharing all these great stories and insights into uh, trial practice, Michael. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, David. Bye-bye. Scarlet strode about the room. She defended what he did. What an amazing lawyer, Michael Tiger. And I know I've criticized our system quite a bit over seasons one and two, but this case really shows the greatness of the American criminal justice system when a wonderful lawyer like Michael Tiger can represent a Terry Nichols in a case like the Oklahoma City bombing case. It shows how our system works and it worked in this case. A bunch of people to thank. First, let me thank Amande Nyong'o for this song called The Arms that's playing in the background. You should check out his website at omotionmusic.com. The inspiration for this song is his wife, Heather Nyong'o, who is a fierce criminal defense lawyer out in California. Wonderful lawyer, Heather Nyong'o. Amundi also not only writes great music like this, but treats blind and visually impaired children as a practicing pediatric ophthalmologist. And just so you know, Jack Hardman of London, England composed the music. Jenny G of LA was the lead vocal and Jay Franklin, also of LA, was on background vocals. I want to thank the guests of season two. What a lineup. Alan Dershowitz, Jose Baez, Ron Sullivan, Rob Carey, Jane Weintraub, Abby Lowell, David Gerger, and of course in this episode, Michael Tiger. The CLE credits for you Florida lawyers for season two, you get 11 and a half CLE credits. You can use this code 21001381N. 21001381N. If you need the CLE for season one, just email me at dmarcus at marcuslaw.com. You can get on our mailing list at our website, forthedefensepodcast.com, forthedefensepodcast.com. I also want to thank Alfred Spellman, who is the producer of this podcast and who puts up with me every week and my craziness. Thank you, Alfred. Building a life, not a bomb. What a masterful criminal defense theme and a master criminal defense lawyer of Michael Tiger. It's strange to say, but this is one of the highest callings. And you can see Tiger echoing his mentor's words, Edward Bennett Williams, that the criminal justice system should be a sanctuary in the jungle. Words to live by. Thank you. I'll see you hopefully on the next season, season three of For the Defense. If you've liked it, please subscribe to the show and leave reviews and ratings if you could. That would really help us get going for season three. Thank you. My name is David Oscar Marcus, and this is For the Defense.